Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, I'm Pac Romain, and you're listening to SupDoc. We've been recording this documentary podcast since 2015, recapping awesome documentaries with our great guests from TV, film, comedy, and more. On today's episode, we recap the 2014 documentary Jocko, currently streaming on Hulu. Jocko, the doc, is about the brief, brilliant, and brutal musical career of the legendary electric bass player Jocko Pastorius, a self-taught musician who changed the course of modern music. Never before seen archival footage plus interviews unveil the story of Jocko's life, his music, his demise, and the lasting impressions of an artistic genius. My guests today are Chucky Sklar and Brett Berg. Chucky Sklar is a Los Angeles-based bass player and composer. He has played festivals like Noise Pop and the Offbeat Fest and has shared the stage with like-minded weirdos, P. Lander Z, Elvez, Bob Log III, Captured by Robots Flipper, and Shannon and the Clams. His four-song EP, The Water, which I've listened to and it's awesome, is out now on Who Can You Trust? Records, and Brett Berg, who hosts a weekly Twitch show called The Museum of Home Video, which has been described as college radio for the eyes. Join Brett every Tuesday at 7.30 Pacific Standard Time. And now here's Chalky and Brett. Hi, guys. Hi. <laughs> we did it. Awesome. That was um, awesome, Paco. Good job. Thank you so much. Pro voiceover guy here. And also a giant Jocko Pistorius fan. Wow. I, I know. Mean, can you be a bass player and not be a, uh, at least have him loom over you in some sort of sense? No, I don't. Even if you don't know who Jocko is, you can't because you're going to be influenced by him because you're influenced by the Beastie Boys. You're influenced by Sting or you're influenced by Flea or Victor Wooten or some other fucking hacky ass bass player. I don't know. <laughs> There's like everyone. If you're a bass player, somehow some way, an electric bass player, you were influenced by Jocko if you started playing post, what, 1976, let's say. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't even realize how much his, he influences me. It's just within me. You know what I mean? It's just, I was, it's when you learn, I don't know, I, Brett, I think I'm a little older than you, but I think we're around the same generation where, did you read Bass Player Magazine ever? I did not, but I definitely stared at it on the newsstand. Yeah, well, when you re when Bass Player Magazine just like pummeled you with this is the guy who should be your god, Jocko, Jocko, Jocko. So I didn't get into him for a long time. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I was like, oh, I, 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 it was too much, too much for me. Uh, but as I got older and I got into those Weather Report albums, then I, I really fell in love with his playing. Oh man! So I'll, I'll tell you my the my my origin story with Jocko was I had bass lessons and I was a teenager and um, I went to my bass lesson and my bass teacher was crying and I was like, what's up? He answered the door. I was like, what's up? And he said, Jocko Pistorius died last night. And I said, who is Jocko? And he was like, oh, 
come in. We're going to be playing some albums for the next couple of hours. <laughs> and, and, and billing your parents for it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think my bass lessons were 15 bucks an hour oh. back then. And he That's said, a lot. I know, yeah, it's yeah. expensive. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. This was obviously 87. So uh, I sat down and we listened to his solo album, some weather report, um, word of mouth, and I was just blown away. I was like, what? what is that? How do you get to do that? You know? Yeah, his his body of work is interesting, right? Because he is such a, an amazing bass player and he played with so much soul. And he played on all these records, but you look at the body of work in it, there's nothing really that lasting, right? There's that first album. There's a couple good Weather Report albums and, you know, more mediocre ones. There's like the couple good Joni albums, but his body of work doesn't really stand up to his legend. So he's a little frustrating in that way to me. Huh. Mm -hmm. I'm going to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> really? You think so? And there's so many live albums where it's like, you know, he it was an off night for him and stuff. You know, it's yeah. just, there's a lot of stuff to get through to find the gold. Yeah, well, okay, that's, I mean, there's there's something to be said about that. But I think you can, I, I think just the first word of, I think just his solo album, his first solo album. And that's the one, that's the one great album. that And the that word of mouth, and his word of mouth album, and Invitation. Like those albums... And the stuff he did with uh, Pat Metheny and Joni, like those, like you, that's enough. That's almost enough. He's only 35 when he died, you know, like, yeah. like he's pretty young. Yeah. Are we talking about the movie yet? Or are we just yes, are we getting we're right in into it? it? Okay. We're all in it. Have you ever heard that Ian Hunter? I never knew that he was on an Ian Hunter album from Mott the Hoople. Have you ever heard that one? <laughs> no, no, I I'm have never. I'm super interested. Have you, uh, Brett, have you heard that? No, I. It's funny. I have a very difficult relationship with jazz fusion because I, when I was in junior high, I learned how to play bass, and then I got into jazz band in high school. All four years of high school, I was in the jazz band as a bass player. And the first year, our teacher was a really cool cat who taught us Herbie Hancock and Freddie Hubbard and stuff like that. So that's where I first heard Jazz Fusion and understood what it was. And then I went through like, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years of not liking it. And then only in my later 30s up until now have I discovered this rich vein of interesting material that I've, that has basically formed 50% of my daily listening while I'm at work. Um, so I didn't really get to do the deep dive on like the 80s stuff of all the, the, the Fusion guys. So I only know limited Jocko stuff, but his visage his like iconic ghoulish image is kind of like a tomato du plenty of the screamers it's always going to be there when you think about the music yeah interesting that is that's true i um for me it's like i i was a i, I was like a classic rock teenager until i got introduced to pat metheny and Jocko and Bright Size Life and um Shadows Shadows and Lights the Joni Mitchell album and then I was just hooked. And then I mm. went and saw Pat. When I was 16, I went and saw Pat Metheny live. He did um, um, Still Life Talking Tour, and I was blown away. I just You saw Jocko live then? I didn't see Jocko. Oh, okay. You saw Pat Metheny. Okay. Yeah, I saw Pat with the Still Life Talking Tour in 87. And um, 
I had just started getting into jazz. I got a bass teacher, Pete Fair, who's Jad Fair's brother from half oh. Japanese. Yeah. Because yeah. half Japanese was originally from my tiny hometown in Michigan. And so I took bass lessons from Pete Fair, and he's the mm. one that was crying. Look at you with indie cred, Paco. Dude, I'm just dropping it all <laughs> over the place. What else? <laughs> just what it doesn't, whatever. I don't, I mean, yeah. But um, so, yeah, so Pete, Pete Fair, my bass teacher was, he was crying. I was like, what's, and, you know, and he was like, Jocko. And I, we listened and I was like, that's insane. And yes, in the doc, All American Alien Boy, because I, I listened to it today. On YouTube, that's the Ian Hunter song with Jocko. And I was like, oh, f- hell yeah, that's a Jocko bass line. Uh-huh. It's so funky. Ian, Ian Hunter's Hunter. cool. Yeah. Ian Hunter's really cool. There's a lot about that. That's those 70s rock guys that I, I personally don't know a lot about. But every time I find out something, I'm like, that's pretty fucking sweet. So, so Brett, now that you've dived, you've dove into fusion jazz, uh, what are your, what are you listening to? Have you, have you gotten to Weather Report yet? Are you done with Weather Report? I did the weather report stuff um, actually last year, and I found that my favorite weather report album was their contractual obligation record from '85, which is actually <laughs> the most killer record. Um, wow. I'll look. I'll look up what it's called, but it's obviously way beyond Jocko's involvement in it. I think like um, Zawinul wasn't even involved with it at that point, or some was crazy that thing. Sporting Life? No, it's after that. It's like oh, okay, five eighty. I'll look it up. Okay. I uh I was I, I think the my favorite part of this movie. Well, I have two favorite parts of this movie. One of them is when Jocko is drunk and he looks at the camera and he says Chuck Mangione does too much coke and eats too much pasta and wears yes. a hat. Yes. <laughs> yes. That that you know, I saw this movie also a year or two ago and I did not uh-huh. get to watch it before we hopped on. But I remember it's like a home movie clip where he just straight up addresses the camera and says like really real shit. Yeah, for like thirty seconds. <laughs> yeah, that was also my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, they, they call him Ch- Chuck Manicotti. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, but the the weather report stuff was fascinating to me. His relationship with Zawinul and Joe Zawinul seems like a real weirdo, and I want to see the Joe Zawinul documentary. Uh, yeah, but he yeah. seemed to have a lo- they have a love hate relationship. Paco, would you say? Uh, well, it's more than that. It's father son, which is even oh. more deep and demented and, and layered. Um, I think that their relationship at, at first was one of like Joe recognizing Jocko's genius. And Joe Zawinul was uh, the keyboardist for Cannonball Adderley for a long time. So he wrote Mercy, he wrote, Mercy, Mercy. Classic. <laughs> a classic. A white Austrian dude writing one of the classic Cannonball Adderley tunes. Yeah. And I think Joe recognized the... Um, genius and Jocko wanted to bring him along. Plus, he was like, we have the world's best band and Jocko would self-proclaim to be the world's greatest bass player, which is funny. Like, you don't really meet people who are like, I'm the best dot, 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 and they actually are the best dot, dot, dot. <laughs> you know, yeah, he he is miles ahead of every bass player ever, like still probably, like the way John Bonham, no one could ever quite play like him, you know. Um, but... Like I said, if for being the best, he has a slim body of work. And like for the Weather Report being the best band ever, they like they don't have all the, like most of their records aren't that great. But I do love a lot of Weather Report stuff. And there's that live album, eight thirty, eight thirty. That's maybe my best, my favorite piece of Jocko material. I oh mean, yeah, that, that thing's in, that album is crazy. 
That's and we got people forget it's a jazz band. I mean, we talking Wayne Shorter and you know and like and Joe Zawinul and jo- like these are like classically trained jazz musicians who are out there just fucking jamming. Yeah, you know, eight thirty black market teen town Birdland. Like that's such a great album, and I would have loved to have been able to see Weather Report live. I never got a chance. Yeah, there's the, there's footage in this movie of them playing in 1976 in Germany, and it's Peter Erskine's has his shirt off and he's really hairy, and <laughs> yeah. Jocko has his shirt off, and they're they're like at the the height of their powers. It's really incredible powerful footage i think you know what i mean and this 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 movie succeeds in a lot of ways there's a lot of great footage that everyone should see in this movie i think robert trujillo of metallica did a good job he did a great job and i agree i mean i think it's a great music documentary that kind of stands alone as a great music documentary whether you're into jazz or jocko or funk or rock or whatever or even just bass players like it's a really well-made Doc And I was very excited when it first came out because there hadn't been much about Jocko for a long time. There was the Bill Mikowski book, Jocko. That's it. That was it. He was so mysterious, you know, before YouTube and stuff. Well, I I do recall seeing his, quote, bass instructional video, which is kind of a joke. It's just a video of watching him play because there's no way that he can impart onto a student what he's doing nor <laughs> is the video teaching you much it's just it's like him and another really like big bass player guy um just swapping stories and like playing occasional ways. yeah yeah i did i did see that and that that was not a hidden video that that was a video stories like, I remember. it was and it was when he was in particularly bad shape which is another thing that i mean i watch a lot of music documentaries i know brett does too i know you do too paco and I hate music documentaries. They're the worst. They're mostly suck. <laughs> and they do you know, They're awful. Yeah, they're so bad. And it's mostly talking heads. They're Thurston Moore going, this record's really good. And, uh, you know, this movie has the talking heads I want to see, though. You know, Bootsy, Sting, all the Lenny White, all the old Fusion guys. are They're like, everyone I want to see. Mike Stern is in there, for God's sake. Aldi Amola. Um, Aldi Miola. But um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So he was. But there so there was that one tape out there where he's acting weird. The one instructional tape. But other than that, like there wasn't many much footage. And like he looks so weird in his pictures, you know, and I thought he was like I didn't know he was just a kid from Florida. You know what I mean? He's and he's the Udo <laughs> Kier of jazz. <laughs> he is the Udo Kier. And that's another thing I never like in the in this uh, this documentary, all his um, contemporaries and colleagues keep going like, yeah, he brought the the Florida sound. He had what it's called the Florida sound. I never knew. I never heard that before that it's the Florida sound, but I get it because it's like a Cuban conga thing he's doing with his finger. It was wild. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree. I didn't know. I didn't know. I always thought Jocko was from New York because I remember watching that Jared Jamont um, bass instructional video tape with Jocko and he's got kind of like, yeah, he's got kind of like a Eastern like, like an East Coast kind of way of speaking, you know. So I thought he was kind of from New York, and then I was surprised to find out that he was actually from Florida. But then, like you said, it makes perfect sense that kind of, um, especially when you listen to like word of mouth, and he's using those kind of um, Cuban beats, you know, and yeah. uh, even the instrumentation. I mean, he's using um, like tin pans and um, congas and French horn. I mean, it has that kind of sound. 
You know, he started a long tradition of uh, great bass players from Florida, including Rick Finch from Casey and the Sunshine Band and Alex <laughs> Webster from Cannibal Corpse. Oh, interesting. I don't know Cannibal Corpse. What do they sound like? What you th- is what you could imagine. They yeah, sound okay. Like, but they're, <laughs> <laughs> they're light jazz. It's like Spyrogyra a little bit. <laughs> a little, little Spyrogyra. And the other thing, I, I didn't realize he had grown up with a dad that was like a big band singer, you know? None of this stuff was, except in that biography, you know, which was like a trudge to read through. None of this stuff was known. He was just a, this jazz god. Like, we know everything about Jimmy. We knew everything about Edward Van Halen, rest in peace. Right. To that point, I want to say, <clears throat> yeah, everyone calls Jocko the, the Jimmy of bass. And I would say that Jocko is more akin to the Edward Van Halen of bass. Maybe the Jimmy of bass was like Jack Bruce or John Atwistle or, or something. But Jocko was doing all the heart. He changed the harmonic sound. Yeah. Like Eddie did. Yeah. And I frankly don't really like Jimi Hendrix. So it makes, I'd much rather have him be compared to Eddie than Jimi. That's crazy. You shouldn't be allowed to talk about music ever (laughs) though. Well, I I feel, I I know what you're talking about because, you know, if you say to someone today, oh, I just listened to a Jocko Pistorius record, they'll go, oh yeah. Like if they're ahead, yeah, you know, Mm -hmm. if they're a music listener. But if you say to someone, I was just listening to a Jimi Hendrix record the other day, people go, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I listen to Jimmy often, I confess. So I, I, I like Jimmy a lot. Um, uh, what was, oh, so uh, this movie also succeeds, I think, because it does have so much footage that I like. The footage of him at Young playing in a big like jazz band. He's like a teenager. It's incredible. I think he's like 15 or something. That's ridiculous. How do they get how, how people had video cameras back then? Paco, you were around. I that was a little before my time. But yeah, I think every 10th household had a camera. I, guess. <laughs> I don't know, because there's footage of like him and his kids, uh, him and his brothers and sisters playing and his mom, you know, yeah, so it's like, wild. It's so wild. Yeah. And yeah, he's such, he's a gawky teen, just totally owning the bass, like he was born with it in his hand, you know? And he come in the audition, of course, the band put charts in front of him. From what I gather, he didn't read much at all. All of that matter to me is, can he play a field? I just give him a card and say, I'm gonna count to four, we're gonna play a blues, play some lead blues right now. strange he could play fields blues fields that people hadn't played in 30 years if he heard it one time he could play it authentically where not only were the notes right the field was right and that was something that impressed me i knew it i knew somebody in the band would teach him to read professional welder shana ford used vr training developed by forge fx to hone her skills as a welder the more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Another interesting factoid from this documentary is that Jocko couldn't read music or and he was also self-taught on the bass, which is insane to me that you that he could play what he played without having to, the ability to actually read music. 
I, I cannot read music, and I learned by ear everything in high school. So I know where he's coming. I'm not saying I'm Jaco Pistorius. I'm saying that it is possible to develop your own style and not know how to read. I, I, do you know how to read? No, I too cannot read and learned by ear. So it makes sense what? to me too. Yeah. <laughs> wow. How? Yeah. Um, by listening to records over and over again. And yeah. just imitating? And, yeah. Well, I mean, ta- tablature helps. But um, the idea, well, for me personally, it was the idea of breaking down the fretboard numerically and understanding what sounds come from what numerical orders. Does that make sense? No, not not. Can you explain further? Okay, so the fretboard is zero to twenty something. So yeah. on each string, you have a number that's like zero to twenty something. So if you can, in your mind, picture visually how t- how your fingers work in order to play a lick, and you think about tablature, you can assign numbers to every move. And so I just remember the numbers a lot of the time. Oh wow, that's interesting. Is that how you did it, Chucky? No, I just like played that. Oh, this note sounds wrong. Oh, this one sounds right. And I just did that. It was a process, trial, trial and error. Like I can't play fucking Donna Lee for you if you put a bass in my hand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but uh, I could mess. I could play a very sloppy approximation of it. Right. <laughs> perhaps the reason. Perhaps the reason why I started specifically like that and kind of like a numbers brain is because my very first tablature book was Metallica's Kill 'Em All published by Guitar Magazine, and I bought it at a Suncoast Motion Picture Company in 1992. <laughs> and I spent a whole summer between 7th and 8th grade learning how to play the bass parts on Kill 'Em All, except for that fucking bass solo that he does in the middle. I can't, I can't do that. But I learned everything else, and I assigned numbers in my mind to notes, and it just took off from there. Yeah, so, so when I was coming up at the same time, like I learned how to play bass playing Metallica too. And reading tablature from Bass Player magazine, so it I, I think I think it trains your brain in a different way. You know what I mean? It's more it's more riff based than like theory based. <laughs> yes, right. I, I would say that I ca- I cannot describe to you what a scale sounds like. I can't like go blah 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 blah. But I can definitely play most things if you stick most things in front of me because I can. That, I've seen I've, I've seen Brett like in a band with like charts and stuff, but um, Jocko did did know the scales and did know every note of every chord and could play like ancient scales and roots and and and, and stuff like that he did know understand all that you know and, yeah uh, so that's that's what's different with him yeah he did he i mean he obviously listened to a lot of uh a lot of jazz and a lot of just all kinds of different kind of music and and learned scales i mean like the donna lee thing that he plays is so impressive for one because it's a fucking fast ass sax solo that he's playing on electric bass but it's also like technically proficient like he's playing i was it was it sting somebody in this doc was like or maybe it was jared jamont was saying like he's not just playing it like a bass like he was it was the guy who signed him who, oh, right. Who first, who first signed him, which that story is amazing. This guy was just at a baseball game and saw a cute girl <laughs> and she told him I'm married to the greatest to, to the greatest bass player in the world. And the next thing you knew, he was on, on a plane to New York to, to record his first record with, you know, right. Hubert Laws and Lenny White and shit. So that was interesting. Like his fame went so fast. Super you know what fast. I mean? Yeah. yeah. That, that's what. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, please. Oh, this was also the era when jazz sidemen could be superstars. <laughs> when a bass player like Stanley Clark or something, who's normally in the background, can 
thanks to progressive rock, I think it was not yeah. Miles and Herbie. It was more like Russian Yes, which foregrounded the bass player and allowed Stanley Clark and Jocko and people like Victor Wooten, all the superstars, all the like finger wizards to like right come come yeah. forth. It's a very 70s story where they're like, just just playing some baseball. And I saw a cute chick. She said she's married to the greatest bass player in the world. And then he's a superstar. It seems like a very 70s kind of story, you know? Yeah. Like, that seems like what would happen in the 70s. And that weird, dude, the, the time period between like 68 and 76, uh, like the stuff that was going on in the world, especially United States and UK of the Prague, jazz fusion, jazz in itself, the electric miles stuff, the weather report, even the stuff that was coming out of UK, like um, Brand X, you know, and Percy Jones and people, you know, another person I hate to death is Phil Collins, but at least like stuff like Genesis was doing, you know, with all the prog rock, like it was a very like crazy fertile time when those albums were actually selling. Can you imagine today those kind of albums selling well? No, no, it's, 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 but those are the records we all listen to, you know, still, you know, they, yeah. they've lasted. Um, I maintain, by the way, that there's no such thing as a good American prog band. You can only be European and be good at prog. I, I second this. I really, I, I, Oh, thank God. <laughs> I cannot name an American progressive rock band from the seventies that I have listened to and enjoyed. Yeah. People say Kansas, they're okay. Sticks has a couple tracks, but they're not like Yes or Genesis or King Crimson. You know? Or even Can, you know? Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, oh. I, I, we can talk Germany for a second. There were like some German-ass prog rock bands that were like, what the fuck is happening? Do you think Jocko ever heard Can? <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah. I hope He's, he did. He strikes me as someone who's this is totally just me basing it on nothing, but he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who was a, a voracious listener of other stuff. You would think so, but he, he, he kind of talks about how he is. He says, he says, I listen to everything and he says, I'm stuck oh. in this world of jazz, but I like everything. He says, I like funk. I like country Western. I like it all. Like he, he talks about that a lot actually. Yeah. I got the impression that he listened to a lot of music. Um, even, uh, you know, classical. I mean, he does like a Bach tune on word of mouth, um, you know, and he does the chicken. I mean, the stuff is so all over the place. Like they talk about the fact that he opened up that word of mouth album with Crisis, that crazy ass fucking song, man. Like Crisis is one of the craziest jazz tunes. And then he goes right into, I think, John and Mary, which is one of the most beautiful compositions I've ever yeah, heard. And Warner Brothers signed him to be to make these big like fusion, like Herbie Hancock hits. And this is what he delivered to them. And they were pissed, you know? They were and like, I think that's, I think Jock, that's as a listener, that's what's frustrating about Jocko to me too. I want, I wish he had an album of all fucking bass bangers, but he's like, fuck you. I'm going to do this classical avant-garde piece. I'm going to do this totally noisy bebop piece. And that was his whole thing. You know what I mean? But I, yeah. I understand, I understand why Warner brothers was frustrated because I too, I'm frustrated that just, I just want that one Jocko album I could put out where it's just all like a, like a Herbie album from the late seventies. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean that part I do get. I never quite thought about it like that. Uh, he seemed almost too boyish, almost too um, childlike to to have put out an album that didn't have some like 
crazy left turns in it. If that mm-hmm. makes any sense, like yeah. it's almost like he was just so like goofy and, and liked having practical jokes. It'd be like, here's a fucking hard ass bass jazz uh, song that it just goes to the depths. And the next song is like, now we're going to do this like polka. You know? <laughs> yeah. And would you say Paco, I don't know, like if the movie was trying to say this or not, but do you think his playing got more manic as he dwindled down and more in mental illness? Oh, yeah, for sure. And maybe even Crisis is, like, kind of, like, alluding to that in a way. Oh, fuck. You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't so think at, about that. when he was not doing so good, Brett, they talk about this band he put together called the Trio of Doom. Have you ever heard of the Trio of Doom? I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah and, and it was supposed to be, it was John McLaughlin and Jocko and Tony Williams, and it was, the Trio of Doom's the sickest name ever. <laughs> and they yeah. did one concert, and Jocko just, like, didn't play in key the whole time, and... Tony Williams was like, never again. You know, yeah. it just didn't work. Yeah, if you, you can't fuck over Tony Williams, for Christ's sakes. John McLaughlin was probably like, all right, sport, lovely, lovely. <laughs> but Tony Williams was like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, like, uh, yeah, I, I, I heard one story. I mean, they talked to Joni a little bit in uh, this documentary. And, you know, Joni's the high priestess of of music. I mean, and she t- tells a couple of stories, but I do remember reading a story that Jocko came and played with her in New York and was in all war paint and a like loincloth and didn't have strings on his bass. Like he showed up and he was on stage and there was, he didn't have strings on his bass. I mean, wow. he was totally gone. Yeah. I want two points to that. I want to say is that I think this Joni footage this latter day Joni footage is probably the last interview she ever did. And it's really important. I feel like, I think, I think this is really good that we have this footage of Joni telling these stories and everyone should see it. This gets very important. Second of all, yeah, he was so gone. There's a story at the end of this movie that flea says my singer, Anthony was walking around New York and he saw Jocko sleeping on a park bench and Jocko was homeless and sleeping on park benches like this five years earlier, four years earlier. He was in Germany, uh, you know, playing Montreux and, or, you know, he's playing, he was out everywhere. And it's just, yeah, it doesn't make sense. And even the people close to him can't seem to explain it. And his family can't seem to explain it. So yeah. no one knows what happened, I guess, or how, how quick or how bad it was. It's very confusing, but I don't think it's, it's not, it's not the movie's fault. I think the people in his life also don't understand how it happened. Well, there's also a very touching scene with um, Peter Erskine, who talks about coming off the stage after Jocko is killed, after he's murdered, and a listener in Italy just being like, hey, what the fuck? Why did you guys let this happen? Like, why didn't you step in and do something about that? You know, and and you can see from Peter Erskine's face, he's like, fuck. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I forget how young Jocko, he was 35 years old when he was killed, you know, like, so that means his friends were 35, 34, 33. I don't know if I would have been able to, if I had a friend that was doing that when I was 33, I don't think I would have known what to do. You know, you basically are kind of like, all right, brother, like, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, it's scary. Everything you're doing is scary and I'm, I'm feeling for you, but I got my thing I, I'm trying to do. And like, I hope, you know, something good comes out of it. Yeah, it's it's so sad. Uh, no, I like I said earlier, I don't think anyone ever is going to play bass like Jocko again. Like you can't, like, you can't, you could can imitate no. the style, but you just can't. Yeah. It's 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 wild. Well, he's and, like, and it happened so fast. He got famous so fast, and it just went so such a short career. You know what I mean? Wow. 
super short. And he's like, he's like Charles Mingus of the electric bass. Like, I mean, I call them the big thinkers of music. Like Charles Mingus was a composer that just played bass. You know what I'm saying? He just happened to play the bass, but he was this big picture guy. And, and Miles was a composer that just played, that just happened to play the trumpet. Same with Jocko. He's a composer that just happened an arranger that just happened to play the electric bass like nobody else but that's what made him so great is that he used the bass in ways nobody ever thought about using the bass before it was never like an upfront instrument you know and not only did Jocko bring it up front but he would also set it on fire throw it up in the air do backflips off amps you know at one point they show him with it on the stage and he's playing harmonics with it like laying down yeah like a piano or something yeah, like a piano. I really like when he balances it on his hand, though. That's really fun. Yeah. I do like <laughs> the tricks. Fun. The tricks get to me. But yeah. um, but it seems like he was showboated too much sometimes, and he would piss off Joe Zawino, and even Joni was like, yeah, he would take long solos and dance around a lot when he played with me one time. So, you know, it was, it was, it was not always – his flashiness was sometimes to his detriment. Absolutely. And he needed his own fucking – like four piece, basically. He needed a front, a quartet, or a quintet. You know? I think you just hit upon something that's very, very important. It's like a hidden lasagna layer to this story. So if you look up Jocko's discography, he's got like two solo records, right? The ones we've talked about, 76 and then uh, Word of Mouth. Word of Mouth, yeah. Like, um, that are like the official uh, records. His contemporaries, like let's just say Stanley Clark or anybody like that, was pumping out one to two albums per year at that time. And because they were making money for other people, they had, let's just say you were Jocko, and if you were making an album or two a year, you had a record label who was looking after you, you had like a manager, you had uh, people who were making money off you whose best interest it was in to keep you together. You know, like any 70s rock star who's falling apart, like Alice Cooper had minders to keep him together. Yeah. Because Jocko was not a successful recording artist for whatever reason. He didn't have an apparatus around him to protect him with money. And so he's yeah. sleeping on a park bench because he has no minders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's a perfect example of someone who got fucked by the music business. He should have been rich. You know? Oh, I mean? yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. He also probably made... A horror, I don't know if I'd call it a horror. He, I, I almost feel like, I wonder, let me put it this way. I wonder what his life and his career would have been if he had not joined Weather Report, you know? Like, because hmm. his relationship with Joe Zawinul seems so fraught. And apparently, I mean, they don't really talk about this in the doc, but apparently, you know, Jocko was drug-free and alcohol-free up until basically he met Joe Zawinul and Joe loved to drink vodka and party his ass off. And he's the one that like introduced alcohol to Jocko. <laughs> and then it was the alcohol abuse that really, I think was the catalyst for his, um, bipolar, you know, uh, uh problem that he had. Well, he, so he I, never would have been a session guy cause he couldn't be able to, he couldn't handle those jobs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what do you think? What do you, what do you think he would have been if he never joined weather report? Me? Yeah. I I mean, I think he probably would have continued on making the albums that he was making, like his, that first Jaco Pistorius album. I mean, he yeah. seemed to me like more of a composer arranger 
that just happened to play the bass, you know? So I, I feel like if he had kind of circumvented weather report, not got involved in drugs and maintained kind of like his basketball playing, meditating self, he probably would have been able to like ease the, the problems of, of his bipolar diagnosis, hopefully with some drugs. And I think he would have gone on to be an amazing movie composer. Like that's, I, that's what I hear when I hear his, songs is movie composition like i think jocko could have scored some great movies you know oh man he would have had a rad like ecm run like pat metheny or something you know what i mean yeah i would have loved to hear 80 uh, jocko 80s ecm records oh my it's like God. real meditative yeah i think you know what i think you're right i think he would have kept it together Paco, Paco, i think you have a you're onto something there it's pure speculation on my part but i think i think his relationship was so father son with joe that when joe's out i mean they talk about the fact that joe listened to that first word of mouth album and was like this is garbage he was like this is basically high school big band music you know which is high school big band bullshit bullshit (laughs) thank you yes and like if that's your father figure you know like like that's that's really fucking disparaging you know and they bring it up a few times in the stock about how much jocko didn't like to face, lose face. You know, he didn't enjoy having his reputation brought down a peg, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to hear, like when people talk about Jocko now and they dismiss him because of the child, you know, it's kind of unhip to be so, you know, have such good chops and have such good technical prowess or hip to be punk. But, um, so people talk about Jocko now, like, Oh, his bass sounds like, you know, it's like you're holding your nose, like the nasal sound or something. And that Joe Zawinul's quoted in this, I think Alphonse Johnson says it, is quoted in this movie is like saying like, man, Jocko's bass sounds like a, a trombone sometimes. And like, I'm like, oh, that's so interesting to hear like a contemporary say that because that's like what I hear people say now. You know what I mean? So people oh. knew. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, it's, it's hard for me to pull away the veil of the Jocko mystique and the icon and I think really give him a listen that is more like of like, I'm going to actually analyze this, you know, for me, it's almost, he's so untouchable that it's like, when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, well, that's not, that's not a problem. Why is that a problem that he sounds like a trombone now? And he sounds like a piano and he sounds like a whole orchestra and a different song, you know? Yeah. No, it's no problem. It's, it's just, you know, some people, there's trends in, in music, especially guitar and bass tones. And some of that stuff is considered dated, but it isn't to me or I mean, right. we're old though. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I just, I mean, I just like, I just like when shit sounds good, you know, I don't care, you know, like, I mean, there's, I mean, there's some Herbie Hancock albums that sound like they were made in the seventies, but they still jam hard, you know, there's, they still rip, but there is an element of disco in it and like a disco beat that is kind of like, meh, but if it's if it's jamming, it's jamming. Like I, do you guys ever get into Return to Forever? I've heard it. It hasn't really grabbed me in the way that some other stuff has, but I appreciate its uh, togetherness. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. I it's like almost too too good for me. Like I under like Chick Corea's arrangements are too and compositions are like too good that I have to, I haven't really like, I, I can't let it penetrate me yet. Cause it'll just take over my life, but I, I appreciate it so much. 
I I understand. I completely get that. And <laughs> there it, there is almost a computer quality to Chick Corea's <laughs> piano playing. You know, like I prefer McCoy Tyner or Keith Jarrett personally. Like those are, you know, yeah. Like but fusion records, fusion records. I like. I love like kind of the sloppy rawness of like Tony Williams' Lifetime. Uh, give me some fusion recommendations, you guys. Oh man. Um, I mean, I agree. Lifetime's awesome, but any of the Billy Cobham stuff, you know, like his Shabbat spectrum. spectrum. Yeah, exactly. Like those are, those are great albums. Okay. Um, okay. I'll dive into those. Yeah. I mean, even, Oh, sorry. Uh, Chalky knows this because I've been, we, we off thread. We've been talking about it a lot. I have been, Really fascinated as of late with um, mid seventies jazz funk major label crossovers because there was a moment in time between like seventy four and seventy six where every jazz uh, solo artist went holy shit Herbie Hancock just sold how many records and the ra- the record labels were thinking the same so there's a narrow window of time where everybody tries to jump in that pool. And the ones that stick out to me are Donald Byrd, Eddie Harris, uh, Ramsey Lewis, who's a piano player, um, Bobby Humphrey, the, the flute player, flute has an player. Incredible, incredible record called Fancy Dancer. Oh, yeah, that's a great album. And, um, and of course, Herbie Hancock's next few records directly after. All right. Hunters. I wrote those but, all down. Um, but, yeah. Oh, and uh, the violin player, Michelle Urbaniak, had some right. fucking killer fusion records and Jean-Luc Ponty. Yes. Jean-Luc yes. Ponty. Was I know Ponty. Player. I don't know Michelle Urbaniak. I'm very yeah. excited to dive in. Michelle so Urbaniak. Fun. Dude, the electrifying Eddie Harris album is one of the greatest little crossover. Like he plugged everything into fucking amps and went crazy on that album. Um, yeah. That's, oh, I can't wait to listen record. to that. Oh, it's so good. And then uh, there's even like Larry Coriel, you know, um, he was doing a lot of like, like kooky jazz fusion stuff in the mid 70s. I mean, there's there's so many. It's great. Yeah, I would say for a record that's really going to tear your hair out and like rip your face off, just something that's going to go Wah! right in your face is Donald Byrd's Stepping Into Tomorrow, Stepping Into Tomorrow, 1975. Yeah. Um, Sick. The Headless Horseman of the Hip of Headless Horseman of Hypocrisy. Uh, no. What is uh, there's, there's, man, I have, I almost, I should just turn around and look at my album collection because there's so many great, it's not Les McCann. I'm, I'm trying to think of, um, a, who the, uh, the sax player is. I'll, I'll have to look it up and send it to you. Cause it's such a great album that is, that's the great thing about going uh, record diving for fusion too. If you're into fusion, a lot of times you can find these albums for like, you know, two, three, four or five bucks, you know, cause like. If you know if you know the personnel to look for, if you see Michael and Randy Brecker from 1974, you go like, okay, I'll check this out for two bucks. You know what I mean? <laughs> Hell yeah! And the reason why this period of mid 70s jazz funk major label crossovers ends abruptly in 76 is because in 77, what takes over? Disco. Disco. Oh. And, and it's not a bad thing. It's just a it's just a big shift, and everything you like about the jazz funk stuff is not there. And sometimes with a guy like Donald Byrd, he'll release two records in a year. And it's like the one from the beginning of the year is jazz funk. And the one at the end of the year is disco. Yeah. He's just trying to stay hip. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. And like, so you want to look for labels like CTI, 
and Columbia Jazz. Yes. And and and, and that's all. <laughs> that's all I could think of. <laughs> Dude, um Canned Funk by yeah. Joe Farrell. Do you know oh, that okay. album? I don't know that album. I've seen it Dude. in the stores, but I never oh. listened to it. Herbie, Herbie Man. Uh-huh. Um, his, his stuff. Oh, I love CTI dude. CTI was one of my, is one of my favorite labels. Um, CTI and ECM. I mean, they're not quite the same cause ECM was putting out like more meditative, like kind of, you know, smoke a joint, put on some incense, listen to some ECM stuff. But CTI was doing that fucking ECM was pointedly not fusion. Yes. No, they were very Danish. A lot of just kind of cold drinks and some fish. It was like almost post fusion. It's it definitely was its own type of jazz. So and it was very seventies. So that's cool. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I'm a huge ECM. Oh, dude, I love ECM. There's a bass. There's a bass player who releases all. And he play. He's like the ECM house bass player. Herb Hart. Uh, Weber. Weber, Weber, that guy's that guy's on another level, Ooh. dude. He's on a complete <laughs> different. He always plays like you look at the back of the album and it's like Erbhardt Weber played the thirty-seven string <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with like a dog. There's somehow a dog involved, and it's like, like yeah, always, and, and then always and bass. You know what I mean? And then bass at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Afonso Johnson. I mean, Afonso Johnson. His solo albums are. Fucking awesome! Like that. I, I, I love both bass players that preceded Jocko and Weather Report. I love Miroslav Vitus too. He, he has he has some killer albums out there. And those first two Weather Report albums, when they were sounding more bitches brewy and haunting, are very scary jazz. If you want to hear some cool weird I, synth sounds, I agree, dude. The first <laughs> couple Weather Report albums are fucking out there, man. Mm-hmm. It's like, and that's and they coincide when like Pink Floyd was doing some outward shit, you know, like uh, Weather Report, Bitches Brew, like the Miles Davis doing out, outside shit. It's it's pretty interesting, and you know, I don't know like what was going on other than just lots of fucking LSD or something, but like, you know, that's a very interesting time period. I would love to see a doc that goes like centers around like what was happening in jazz and rock and like prog stuff around the same time you know yeah people were getting paid is the major difference so they had time to make cool (laughs) shit (laughs) you know but it wasn't it was a transitional time and they talk about this in the documentary it was for the first time you know people that went to black sabbath shows were going to weather report shows and seeing return to forever too and it was bill graham was promoting these shows where it was it was a rock star crowd where you had drugs and groupies around too so it was jazz, jazz never had that before they had a little weed and some tap dancing no just kidding yeah no they did not they did not have that and it's an incredible that um it, it became so huge you know when with that jazz you know i remember talking to uh, branford marcellus once and he was t- i was i used to have my own jazz radio program and i would interview people when they came through town and i interviewed branford and i was like dude you just had a gold album and he's like yeah gold albums and jazz is fifteen thousand copies <laughs> that's great <laughs> like, oh shit didn't quite under- didn't realize that so like you know you can still be like one of the greatest and sell 15 20,000 copies you know and like the, that's cool that you talk to the cool marsalis i know right yeah witten man i mean delfeo there's some good delfeo marsalis is cool i mean there's some cool ones we lost we uh, the, the, we lost their father to covid this year i know yeah i know r.i.p dude sucks i just saw today that um, mark maron said he interviewed witten on his podcast today oh, so. i'll make sure to avoid that one 
I know. What it what is about that? Although, like, like, the guy's a fucking amazing trumpeter. I mean, you can't take that away from him, but he seems like kind of a dick. And I listen to him every Sunday morning uh, for CBS Sunday Morning. He does the opening trumpet. But you know who else was great and seemed like a dick? Jaco Pastorius. <laughs> yeah, totally. He was a little freaky. Those eyes. He should have been a like. He should have been a runway model. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he kind of looks like um. What's that guy in Two and a Half Men? The guy that replaced the guy. Um, he looks like he has an Ashton Kutcher esque thing going on. Yeah. He has an Ashton Kutcher face, a little Kutcher face, if you will. Yeah, he's a handsome. I. You know what? Seeing this doc again, like this morning, I watched it and I was like. Ooh, Jocko's kind of a dick. Well, that was his his whole rep. People, it was very difficult to work with and a huge ego. Like everyone said it. I mean, and like he got his ass kicked a couple of times. It was ultimately what caused his death was him being an annoying prick. So, well, he was schizophrenic. I mean, he's bipolar, you know. He wasn't taking his medication, which is what happens when you don't have, like you're saying, people looking after you. Most people that are like that are don't want to take their medication, you know? Yeah, I mean, also, sorry, go ahead. In Eric. the 80s, in, in the eighties, no one knew what bipolar was. Right. So there's that too. Like, how, why did his friends not step in? Because they just thought he was uh, generically nuts. Right. Quote, without even understanding what the disease was. Or at the time, did they have medication? Probably. I think so. Disorder? Yeah, it was like, it was like, you know, root, not what it is now. They had like lithium and stuff in the 80s. Yeah, li- exactly. And it didn't, it didn't have good side effects. And also a lot of his friends, even in this talk, a lot of the talking heads are like, yeah, he was a wild artist. You know, they just chalked it up to that. Right. You know? yeah. yeah. Well, and that's, it's tough because you don't want to step in the way of greatness. I mean, Jocko is Jocko, but if you, apparently like Robert Trujillo bought Jocko's base of doom he found so some guy bought that base off of Jocko in New York for like five bucks or something like that. Jocko is that his all beat up like Fender that he plays? That's yeah, the base of Doom. Okay. Yeah, he finally located it and bought it from this dude that had bought it from Jocko off the streets in New York, <gasps> like fifty bucks or something like that. Wow. Yeah, and th- th- you see him playing it in some of the footage in this doc. Um, so, you know, it, it got to the point where Jocko was playing Louie Louie on some found guitar for, for scraps and pennies, you know. Um, but that's that's what happens to some of these greats. And there's footage of him when he's on the streets and pictures and his face is all blistered up from the sun and he looks really, really bad. Yeah. Really, really bad. It's, I know. It's, heart- it's heartbreaking. It's- it is heartbreaking. You just want someone to like swoop in and like, and then somehow, somehow they have audio recordings of the dad and the phone conversations. Go figure. I'm my theory is that the answering machine went on like like it picked up and the dad did just didn't turn off the answering machine, so they have those tapes around still. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, but it's just so weird because it's like '87. Who recorded anything in '87? I know. You know nothing machine. got recorded in '87. Well, look at the music industry chews you up and spits you out. You all can't be Brian Wilson. That's why we're all three bass players and not in the music industry. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, when did how what, how old were you when you first started playing uh, Chucky? Um, well, my dad's a bass player, so basses were just always around the house. He taught me how to play Louie Louie when I was probably about ten, and then I was just then when I was twelve, I picked it up and started learning Metallica songs. Oh, okay. So 12, nice. 12 is when I, my official, and then my first band was when I was 13. 
We were what was the name cloudy. of the band? There we go. Partly cloudy. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Who? What was? Uh, what did you guys just play covers? How many pieces? No, it was all. It was four piece. It was all original. Uh, five piece. Four piece. All original. And it was like funk and ska music because that's what was going on in 1993, baby. Hell yeah. <laughs> but you guys wrote your own songs? Yeah, because we weren't good enough to play our own yet. You do know? you remember one of them? Yeah, I do. I do. I do. I remember the first song I wrote for that band. What was it? What was it called? It goes, um... Oh, you got you got something? Yeah. <laughs> goes, awesome. Let's hear it. tastes like candy and he tastes like Drink him up fine, edible baby. Eat more babies. That was the first song I ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Are babies keto? Would that be? Yeah, no carbs in a baby. Just scalp the head off. The, the, the best way to eat a baby is drowning it in a bunch of sauce. <laughs> that, that'll add sugar to it. What about you, bro? When did, when did you? How old were you when you first started playing bass? I was 12 years old and I started by learning Metallica songs. <laughs> uh, I, in seventh grade, I had no intention of learning a musical instrument, but I, at my school, was a mandatory music appreciation class that lasted a semester. And in that class, the very last week, the instructor said, okay, there's a drums, there's bass, guitar. Who wants to learn what? Everybody went to the drums or the guitar no one went to the this is a class of like 15 people no one went to the base and i went well if i want to learn something i should learn that because no one went to it and i can probably get i can learn it faster yeah and 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 30 years later practically i'm still playing bass guitar oh that's awesome that's awesome My, I, like i i was 17 and i learned the um barney miller theme song that was the first song i ever learned on the bass yeah i mean well, i guess the first things i was taught was Knocking on Heaven's Door and Hey Joe by a friend in the class. Nice. I've been trying to figure out who's the bass player on that Barney Miller, the original forever, by the way. If you could ever figure that out. Um, we'll let you know. Paco, so uh, I, Brett and I both as bass player. I used to see Brett's band before I knew him. And I'm go like, damn, that, that kid's a sick bass player. But, um, oh, nice. But Brett and I are both are bad at guitar as bass players. How about you? I play a decent guitar. I'm I'm more okay. of a rhythm dude. Yeah, yeah, I can't play leads. I don't play leads at can all. Can you can you solo on the bass? Like Jocko? Yes. <laughs> wow. Sick. I can well, not like Jocko, not even close, <laughs> but I can solo on the bass, yeah. For sure. Um I played in a, a slew of bands in my time in college and then when I came out to San Francisco, I thought it was going to be the thing for me. I worked at a couple of record labels and then I was just like, this sucks. All bass stuff's so heavy. You know, at least it's not the drums. Yeah, true. That is a good point. But I just I remember my last my last I distinctly remember my last gig. And when I realized that I was done playing music, like as trying to be a professional at it and I was pulling in my fucking bass amp. It was raining. We just did a CD release party at Bottom of the Hill and nobody really came. And the sound guy was reading the newspaper during our CD release party, he was so bored. And I was like, all right, <laughs> I'm done with this. Um, yeah. So, um, so Jocko, the doc Hulu, 
I think it's a I think it's a great doc. I was pleasantly surprised. I kind of thought it might be kind of sloppy and kind of, but it looks like they had some money behind it. You know. Yeah, someone that watches a ton of music docs and hates ninety percent of them. I gotta say, this one's decent. If someone could jump in, not knowing anything about Chaco, learn about why he's great and really get uh, the power of his demise. Yeah. Awesome. Well said. Um, Brett, what'd you think? I mean, you've seen it, you saw it before. It's just tragic and it's, and it fits into the narrative of so many tragic music deaths. And it just, who was saying earlier that, you know, most people consider Jocko just a wild artist. Well, it turns out that most wild art comes from people who are undiagnosed. And uh, not to say that we should live in an era where there's no wild art, but now we know how to classify these things a little bit better. So uh, Jocko was born in the right place, right time to be Jocko Pistorius, but he was born in the wrong place, wrong time to live. And uh, that really comes through through every single image of him in the documentary. Well said. All right, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for coming on the SupDoc and talking about one of my all-time favorite musicians, composers, bass players, and um, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, Paco. Yeah, thank you. All right. Um, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, oh before you go, the, the, the weather report record that kills me from the 80s is called This Is This 1986, and it's one of the better 80s jazz records I've ever heard. Nice. Uh, yeah, that is, that is a great one. Um, there you go. So check that out. Um, thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about SupDoc at SupDocPodcast.com, recapping reality since 2015. Our theme song was written by David Siegel. Our show was engineered by Will Scovel. Our associate producer is Nick Coltis. Please donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash podcast. And if you want to help us out in any other way, please just share the show with a friend. Join the Doc Talk and check out our hot takes, pictures, and videos on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We're SupDoc Podcast on all those platforms. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. To find out more about my and George's comedy gigs, check out our About Us page on our website. SupDoc is by Doc fans for Doc fans. So if you want to advertise with SupDoc or if you got a film or opinions or if you want us to have a certain guest on, please hit us up. We'd love to hear more from you and what you're docking out on. So email us at SupDocPodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>